You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. Well, I know we got a lot of little ones in the audience today, and at some point, one of them's going to lose their mind. And it's cool. Don't worry about it. It won't bother me. We've got three kids, so I'm a professional at tuning out children. So just don't worry about it. We won't judge you harshly. We all got them in here. Um, But I'm happy to be with you this morning. Uh, So a few years back, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary added a new definition which is a little bit different. Usually they add a new word and a definition, but this time they just added a new definition to an old word, and that word was goat. And the definition that they added was greatest of all time. And it's a a word that we've started using differently, right, to refer to typically athletes, right? Like who is the athlete that is the greatest of all time, which is one of my favorite discussions. And if we look at this, the, the first athlete to really claim to be the greatest, not just like in talk, but even officially, would have been Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali's organization is Goat Incorporated. And so he's kind of the first to claim this title. But as we talk about that, we know that there's a lot of people in the running to be the greatest of all time when it comes to being an athlete. Of course, if we're gonna talk about the greatest, we gotta talk about Michael Jordan, right? One of the greatest basketball players of all time, but now there's a new generation of basketball fans that might debate us on that one, and they might say, no, 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 LeBron James is the greatest of all time, which is a discussion you should have at lunch, not right now. I know you want to lean to the person next to you, but then we got to look at this. If we're going to talk about the greatest of all time, the greatest athlete, well, we got to look at all sports, right? What about Serena Williams? Serena Williams has way more titles than Michael Jordan has. She's won her thing way more than he and LeBron have won won their things. But then we're just talking about commercial athletes there, right? Like what about the Olympic athletes? Now we get into people like Michael Phelps, who, I mean, nobody has seen anybody swim like that guy. Or what about Simone Biles, who this year at the Olympics, she had embroidered onto her leotard a goat, an actual goat, a statement saying, I'm the greatest of all time. Of course, we know how that played out. She kind of dropped out of some of her competitions for mental health reasons, and that's got to be in this competition too. She's great, but the head game is part of having the all of it, right? And so who is the greatest athlete of all time? And at this point, we're just talking about single sports, right? To be a great athlete, maybe you should have to be better at more than one sport to be athletic, right? Now we're talking about Bo Jackson, because Bo knows, one of the first professional athletes to play pro baseball, pro football, all in the same year. We got Bo Jackson, but again, we're back to commercial sports. What about adventure sports? I mean, in adventure sports like rock climbing or surfing, some of these other things like, you know, Michael Jordan, if he gets injured on the court, like it's probably a sprain or something. But people in adventure sports, people like the guy, anybody watch that movie Free Solo? That guy, Alex Honnold, he, he, he soloed El Capitan, Giant Mountain, with no ropes. I mean, that guy messes up. It is over. Talk about giving your all. I like the discussion of who is the greatest athlete of all time. What does it take to be the greatest athlete of all time? And the reason I bring this up is because this morning we are going to talk about greatness. We're going to hear Jesus talk about greatness. What is the greatest? Who is the greatest? What does it take to be the greatest? All of that is in our section of Mark this morning in Mark chapter 12. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Mark chapter 12. If you have one of the scripture journals that we had available at the coffee bar, you can open it up there. If you don't have any of that stuff, it's on the screen. So let's go. 
Mark chapter 12, verse 28, Jesus has been talking with people and then it says, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he, Jesus, answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Which commandment is the greatest? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. This is incredible. Because Jesus just took 613 Old Testament commandments and summed them up into two verses. Love God, love your neighbor. So simple. He takes all of that Old Testament, all the instruction that we are given in the Old Testament, and he sums it up in two. All the verses that have to do with us honoring and recognizing God, love God. All the verses that have to do with us having society and community with other people, love your neighbor. Jesus sums it up very simply. And so if we focus in this first commandment that you have heard, and so let's pretend this morning that, it's, that we've not heard this before, right? Let's pretend this morning we haven't heard the idea of loving God and then loving your neighbor as yourself, because those have kind of gotten like spoken of a whole bunch, right? When I was in middle school, our middle school like school theme, they had it posted up on the wall. They called it the golden rule. And it was do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And then they tagged on this thing at the end. They said, and the world shall be yours which I think is a funny one, right? Like love others as you love yourself so that you can get the world. Like that's still kind of more loving me, but that's beyond the point. I have a lot of middle school griefs. I'm still working through. But here we get this first commandment is in Deuteronomy 6. And it's from this verse. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This verse, this commandment was later turned into a prayer that all of the Israelite people would have known. Every Jewish person in Jesus's day would have known this prayer. They called it the Shema, which comes from the idea of listen or hear, hear, O Israel. And so they would know this, they would recite it. And so this is nothing new to them, but it focuses in on not just loving God, but loving God with our strength, loving God with our mind, loving God with your heart, loving God with your soul, all of these parts are encapsulated here, loving God with your all. And then Jesus goes further and he says, and the second one is this, love your neighbor as yourself. And a lot of times we just think that Jesus sort of made that one up, that he tagged it on. But this actually comes out of Leviticus. In Leviticus 19, we read this verse. And if you have a Bible, maybe you wanna flip there. I'm gonna go through it pretty quickly. But in Leviticus 19, he uses, it's used as kind of an umbrella for all these other commandments that Israel was given. It says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then up above that verse, in verse 8, up above that, we hear about who our neighbors are and what loving them looks like, or worse, what loving, not loving them would look like. And so in Leviticus 19, we have in verse 10, it talks about saving the corners of your field, saving your crop for the immigrant and the poor. That's verse 10. And then later it says, don't steal and don't be honest. Don't lie to people. That's verse 11. It says, do not oppress or rob your neighbor. That's verse 13. It says again in verse 13, be fair with your workers' wages. And then it says, do not take an advantage over the disabled in 14. And then in verse 15, it says in court, show no partiality between the rich or the poor. And then the last part, it says, don't slander, don't hate or take advantage. And then verse 19, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So right there, we have a great example of what it would look like to not love. And we have a great example of who our neighbor is. 
Our neighbor is not just the person next door to us. It's not just our brother or our sister. It's also the person in another country. It's a person who is rich or poor, the person who has a lot or who doesn't have at all. These are our neighbors. And how are we to treat them? With love, not taking advantage of them. And this should identify God's people. So Jesus pulls this out as one of the greatest commandments, the two greatest commandments. And I think this is incredible because this really sets Christians apart. Because other religions, we don't see this as a commandment in other religions. Other religions, it's often if somebody is different from you, if you're there, if they're an enemy to you, you're not to love them, but you're to defeat them. If they're in a different land, you're supposed to even maybe go and take their land for your God. Christianity is unique in that a command for the people of God is that we love other people. Even if they're different from us, even if they worship another God from us, they're not our enemy, they're our neighbor. We're to love them. We also see in this, I think it tells us a lot about God. You know how you can kind of, we got a lot of parents here, so you all should identify. You know how you sometimes judge another set of parents by the rules they had for their kid? We all do it, right? Like, and you may not even know the parents, like the kids just kind of like you're taking them home from school or they're in your yard playing or whatever and you're striking up conversation and you hear some of the rules that this kid has and they're like, my mom and dad don't let me eat any sugar. And you're like, oh, how do you survive in life, right? Like, and we're just sort of, I'm not saying this is good to do, but we do it. Then we're like judging. You're like, oh, your parents are like that, right? Or they'll be like, my mom and dad say I can't play Xbox after midnight. And you're like, you're six years old. Why are you playing Xbox? Why are you up till midnight? We start judging parents based off of the rules they have for their kids. So if we look at the rules God has for us, well, what would we see that God values? How would we judge God based off the rules he has for his kids? Man, his two top rules are that we love each other. He wants us to love him and love one another. What we learn about God through this is that he is very loving, that he values love. So if we get back to the scribe who posed this question to Jesus, and we don't find out a lot about this scribe, maybe he's trying to trip Jesus up, or maybe he comes honestly wanting to know what Jesus thinks of the two greatest commandments. And then after Jesus responds, he says, you're right, Jesus, pretty much. And then Mark 34, Jesus says, you know, this guy gets it. He says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So they had been pestering Jesus with all these questions. And then we have this guy who asks him another. And then he's like, yeah, that's a great answer, Jesus. And Jesus says, you get it. You're not far from the kingdom. But what is it that's keeping him from the kingdom? Again, we don't get those details. We don't know this guy's life. But I can only imagine that maybe it's because he has a great insight into the law. But he hasn't realized that he's standing in front of the lawgiver. He doesn't realize who Jesus is, that Jesus is God. He is the son of God in the flesh in front of him. And so then Jesus continues after talking about all this. And it says, Jesus taught in the temple. So imagine those scribes are maybe still around. And he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? The Christ meaning the Messiah. And David himself in the Holy Spirit declared the Lord, which translation there would be Yahweh, said to my Lord, translation would be my king, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord or king. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. 
So Jesus here, he starts reciting a psalm. It's Psalm 110, which was written by David. And in it, David says, and God said to my king, sit at my right hand. So there's this king that, that's going to come, the, the Messiah is going to come from the kingly line, but we're going to find out that he's more than an earthly king in this verse. And you get the idea that the other scribes and religious leaders had not read this verse in this way to realize that this king, this Messiah that was coming was going to be more than an earthly king. He was going to be a heavenly king at the right hand of the Father. And as Jesus is saying this, he is pointing to himself. Jesus is saying, listen, I am the greatest of all time. I am greater than Israel's greatest king. And not only am I coming from the line of David, but I'm going to be greater than David. I'm going to sit next to the throne of God because I am God. So Jesus right here identifies himself as the greatest. And then as he's talking, Jesus continues to talk. And again, these scribes are probably around. And he, he mentions the scribes once again. He says, in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at the feasts and who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So right here, Jesus is saying they look great, but they don't follow the second greatest law. They look like they're following all the laws of the Old Testament, but they're missing the one about loving their neighbor. Because he's saying they're taking advantage of widows. They're taking advantage of the people less than them, and they're trying to look better than everybody else. They're trying to be the greatest. And Jesus, time and time again, says greatness comes through humility. If you want to be at the top, you need to find yourself at the bottom. The first shall be last. But then in contrast of this, we get another story in verse 41. And this is, and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. And so they're coming by and it says many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who contributed to the offering box for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything, everything she had, all she had to live on. And our 21st century minds look at that and we're like, that's irresponsible. That's all she had to live on? Two small, she puts her two, that's it? I mean, she should have taken one of those copper coins and put it in an envelope, right? And that's your emergency fund. And then the next one, we're gonna try and pay down any debt we can and then maybe wisely invest it. That's how this widow should use her money. That's not what Jesus says is wisdom. Jesus says what she did is the greatest, that even though she gave less, she gave greater than those who gave much more in amount because she gave all that she had. If you wanna be the greatest, you gotta give it your all, right? We put that in our conversation of athletes. Yeah, but they don't do this. They just do one sport or whatever. Jesus says, if you want to be great, you've got to give your all. And so in this conversation of greatness, of what is the greatest command? Who is the greatest person of all time? It's Jesus. And then how do we be great? We've got to give our all. And so Jesus sets all of this up. And I think it brings us back to that very first commandment, those verses we started talking about, the greatest commandment, love God with all your heart, 
all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. God asks for our all. I think sometimes we focus in like, well, how do I love God with my strength? It's not just about our strength, it's all of our strength. How do I love God with my mind? It's not just about our mind and our thoughts, but it's all of our thoughts. We like to glaze over this all part because I think it's uncomfortable, right? Because it's difficult. Because I don't want to be like that widow, right? Like I want Jesus to talk about me the way he talked about that widow, but I am terrified of the idea of giving my all. What would I do after that? And so with this, we see many times in the Bible, we've seen a history of people in the Old Testament not giving their all, but giving their some, right? There's story after story in the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament, that highlights people that didn't give their all, they only gave their some, and it never goes well for them. There's a guy in the book of Joshua, in Joshua chapter 7, his name is Achan, and God demanded that Israel, when they invade and take out Jericho, that they give up all of the, the plunder from that city, they give it all to God, but Achan kept back some. So he gave some to God, but he kept back some other. And he said it was his all, but he kept back his some, and it didn't go well for Achan. We see Israel, once they're established in the promised land, and they have this land flowing with milk and honey, everything that they need, and God has commanded them, love me, and they do love him, but they love him with their some, because they start loving other things, idols, and the practices of other nations. And so they don't ever love God with their all, they just love him with their some, and it doesn't go well for them. They're kicked out of their land eventually into exile. Enemy armies come and invade them. In the book of Acts, after Jesus' death and resurrection, we see a couple who claimed to give their all, Ananias and Sapphira, but really it was just their sum, and it did not go well for them. Over and over again in the Bible, God is asking for our all. And so we're left with this question, well, how do I love God with my all? I mean, how do you love anybody with your all? Let me give you an example of some people I've studied for a long time, middle schoolers. Have you ever seen a middle schooler in love, right? Or what they call love. They have a crush and it's all they can think about, right? In their notebooks, they're scribbling their crush's name. It's all that they're spending their time on. They start changing the way they dress for this crush. They start changing the music they listen to for this crush. The people they hang out with, they change everything in their life for this crush. And we're sitting there watching saying, that is irresponsible, which is true, right? Because another middle schooler cannot return that kind of love. But the good news for us is that the God of the universe who created us can and does return our love, especially when we give him all of our love. So if you wanna love God with your all, just love God like a middle schooler with a crush, right? Everything you think about. Now I'm changing what I do, how I dress, based off of God. The people I hang out with, it's based off of God and who he wants me to be. That's our all. But we can't forget that loving God with our all also means loving our neighbor. And if we're gonna really love somebody, we have to love with our all. James in the New Testament, one of the New Testament writers, he points this out. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? If somebody says, I love God, but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? For James, the love of God is connected with our love of our neighbor. And I think it was true with Jesus as well. That's why he puts these two commandments together. 
He's saying, if you're gonna love God, you have to love your neighbor. You can't love God without loving your neighbor. And I would argue in the same way, you can't love your neighbor really without also loving God. And so with this, you can't love God if you aren't showing love to those around you. And Jesus raises the stakes on love. In John 15, 13, Jesus himself says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Once again, what is love? Love is all. And if we're gonna love our neighbor, Jesus is challenging us to give up our all for them, to go to the point of laying down your life for them, which seems crazy, right? That's irresponsible, right? Like these are the only two copper coins I've got and Jesus is asking me to give those to other people so that they could know him, so that they could have a better life for them, so that they could have eternity. That feels impossible. But understand that that's exactly what Jesus did for us. Jesus laid down his life, his all for us. And that's why Jesus can say he is the greatest of all time. Because we read about the commandments of God. We read about what God wants on the pages, but in the person of Jesus, we see it. We see the love of God played out where Jesus died for you and I. Even though we have all of our sins, even though we might be of a different nationality, even though we might have made ourselves an enemy to him, Jesus died so that we could live with him for eternity, so that we could know him, so that we could know his father, so that we could have our sins forgiven. Jesus gave up his all, and that is the greatest love. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And so Jesus, the greatest gave his all to us, the least. And then he calls us to do the same thing so that we could have all and so that we could also love all. Because if we look in 1 John 3.16, we're told this. 1 John 3.16 says, by this we know love. So in this whole conversation, if you're curious, of like, all right, well, if I want to love God, if I want to love my neighbor, how do I do it? Jesus is saying right here, or I'm sorry, John is saying right here, by this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. That's how we can identify love, really plainly there. We like to focus on John 3.16. This first John 3.16 is just as good, but maybe more challenging. By this we can identify love because we saw what Jesus did because we see how Jesus loved us, now we know the definition for love. Miriam and Webster can do whatever they want with that, but we see it played out with Jesus. And I wish that it stopped right there, right? Like that's a, that's a great verse if it stops right there. That's a comfortable verse if it stops right there, because that's about me. That's about Jesus giving up his all for me. It says, if we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We ought to lay down our lives for our neighbors, for those around us that might look like us or might not look like us. For those in our family, those outside of our family, we are to be giving our all for them, for them to come and know Christ so that they can also experience the love of God through us so that they could meet Jesus through our love. And that seems crazy, it seems impossible, but realize that Jesus never asks us to do that which he was not willing to do for us. Jesus calls us to it, but he demonstrates it. He demonstrates giving his all to us. 
So I, I know these are hard verses, and there's a big part of me when I'm working on a sermon about verses like this where you wanna kinda like sand off the sharp edges so that it feels more digestible, a little more comfortable. Take some of these places, like, well, when Jesus says all or give down, give, lay down your life or, you know, give up all, like he's talking hyperbole, like he's just exaggerating so we really get the point. I don't want to make these verses dumbed down. I want them to make me uncomfortable. I want them to challenge me to live a life beyond what I think I can live. I want us to be challenged by the words of Jesus, to not take what Jesus said and make it easy so that we feel better about it, but make us feel uncomfortable so that we are challenged in our lives to more. So our question then is how? How do we love with our all? Here's the best answer I have is just, first we gotta assess what is your all? What is the, the sum maybe that you're keeping back? And what is your all? What would it look like to give that sum up? And then also I think we gotta identify who our neighbor is. And maybe you just start with the person that you like, but you don't love. They're gonna be the easiest to start loving, right? Like, all right, just a little bit more. Like, I like them, they're okay. How can I take that to love? And then work your way up to the people you don't like and then start trying to like them and then maybe move that like to love. Or maybe you can even just skip like, be like, I don't like you, but I'm gonna love you because Jesus loves you, figure that one out. And then move to the people we despise, right? To our enemies, like how in the world can I move my enemy to a place where I don't love them, I despise them, but now I love them. I think it's baby steps. I'm not saying to, I'm not saying to give it all today like I am saying that, but I'm saying you can work yourself up to it. I'm saying we can be realistic about it, but most of all, I think if we want to give up our all and be able to follow these commandments of God, we've got to spend time with the one who demonstrated it best, and that's Jesus. And I think the more time we spend with him, time in prayer, time in church together like this, time in a small group talking about him, time reading the Bible on our own, the more we do that, the more we see the greatest, the more we get to be a little bit like the greatest. The more we spend time with someone who gave us all of himself, all of his love, the more we can learn to give a little bit more of ourselves and our love. And as we do that, we're going to realize also that if you have a relationship with Jesus, if you've given up your sins and your life to him, the greatest part about this is that he helps us do the things he asks us to do. He helps us to love others. He goes before us in our giving. He goes before us in our love, even for God. He strengthens that love and guides us with it. And so today, that's my challenge to all of us, myself as well. Is, man, what is the sum we're keeping back? How do we start to give that? Who are the easy people in our lives that we can love? And then let's start working on the hard ones in our lives. And then let's begin spending more time with the greatest of all time. And know that we have His Spirit indwelling in us and His power moving through us. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the simplicity in which Jesus explained it to us, how he whittles down so much into two things, to love you and to love others. And we thank you, God, that you showed us that same love, that you showed us what it means to love, that you showed us what it means to give up your all in the way that Jesus laid down his life for us by dying on the cross, that Jesus died for those who are enemies to him, those who are different from him, of different nationalities from him, those who are richer or poorer than him, we thank you, God, that Jesus died for all. And I pray, God, that that love would just overwhelm us. And if there's anybody here who hasn't experienced that love, let them know just how much you love them and how much you want a life with them today.
and a life with him for eternity. And God, for those of us that are struggling to live in the commandments you've given us, God, I pray that you'd help us to see those baby steps of where maybe if I can't love with my all right now, how can I love with a little bit more? Maybe if I'm not giving with my all right now, how can I give a little bit more? And God, let us know that that only comes through you, through your power and time with the greatest of all time. It's in Jesus' name I pray.